wanted to thank Amy Walton for playing the violin for us this morning and also just to let you know that we're not going to have the privilege of hearing her violin for very much longer. She's moving to Alaska to join her husband who has been there for some time now working and so uh, Amy has agreed to play for us on Easter and so that will actually be her last Sunday with us but uh Amy, thank you for a lot of years that you have played. We as a body are very, very rich in the giftedness that God has put among us. And it really just gratifies my heart to see so many people who are willingly sharing of their gifts, both spiritual and natural, here to facilitate the worship of God's people. And so I am very grateful for that. And and if you have uh, musical abilities and you've been hiding your lamp under a basket, um, shame on you. And uh, come and and, uh, talk to me. I would love to get to know you. And perhaps there is a way that you could share what God has uh, put in you Uh, for the benefit of the people of God here. Let me ask you a question this morning as we just begin our time together. And it's this question. What role does biblical prophecy play in your life? It's a really practical question. What role does biblical prophecy play in your daily life? Maybe a follow-on question that we might ask that goes with it, and that is, what role should it play? What role should biblical prophecy play in our day-to-day lives? Is it merely just something of intellectual interest and curiosity, or does it have a God-ordained purpose for us? In 1970... A man by the name of Hal Lindsey co-authored a book entitled The Late Great Planet Earth. It became a wildly popular bestseller. Checking on the internet, last figures I saw, and they were somewhat dated, it has sold over 28 million copies. So it's been widely distributed and presumably widely read. It was a popular attempt to combine biblical prophecy with current events. And I believe that God used that book to sort of generate a renewed interest in the topic of biblical prophecy in the English-speaking world. Unfortunately, in my judgment, the renewed interest in prophecy was more sensational than spiritual. And that it eventuated in date-setting and fruitless attempts to sort of reconcile current events with what the prophets had to say. People tended to read their Bible in one hand and their newspaper in the other and make all the events fit together. And I suspect that as a result, perhaps even a backlash against some of the excesses associated with that kind of biblical interpretation, the study of prophecy among evangelicals has been on a pretty steady decline. The church 
in my opinion, has been impoverished because of her failure to take seriously the word of God with regard to biblical prophecy. The New Testament clearly states that we are in the last days. These last days began with the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and the sending of the Holy Spirit. We are now in the last days. These last days will come to an end when Christ returns to shatter his enemies and establish his great Davidic kingdom here on earth. And my friends, that is the next event, as it were, on the prophetic calendar. The return of Jesus Christ, first to rescue his church and then to judge the world in tribulation, followed by his kingdom establishment, hangs over this world like the sword of Damocles. And the New Testament is very, very clear about that. Open your Bibles up to James chapter 5, page 1210 in the Pew Bible. James chapter 5. We'll be looking together this morning at verses 7 through 12. And in this section of James' letter, as he's kind of drawing it to a close here, he refers directly to the return of Christ at least three times, probably four. And he does so to a group of believers that are struggling to live amidst some very, very difficult circumstances. In fact, James grounds his commands to them in light of the possibility that Christ could return for them at any moment. That is the basis upon which James issues his commands to these suffering believers. Now, contextually, the believers are poor and they are being persecuted by wicked and wealthy people. And we looked at that last week, chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. The wicked wealthy are oppressing the people of God. Now, we're not experiencing oppression in our lives. We are living with unprecedented freedom of religion and economic prosperity ourselves. So at first read through verses 7 and following, one might think that this doesn't have very much to say to me. Maybe I should just set this section of James aside for that day, God forbid, when I find myself suffering at the hands of the wicked. But my friends, nothing could be further from the truth. All Scripture is inspired of God and therefore profitable, and this section is no different. James has something to say to us. Something to say to us for believers, although we are not in the midst of harsh persecution, there is still something here for us. Something that we can and should learn, even in our relative ease. You know, if you were planning to run a 10K, you wouldn't just wake up on Saturday morning of the race, throw on your tennies and your shorts and waltz out there and begin the race. You would train for it. 
The training would begin with small races, short laps. For me, 100 yards or so. And then perhaps I would add to that later. You kind of build up to it, right? Well, the same is true with regard to spiritual endurance. If we are not enduring in the midst of the relative ease and lack of persecution that we presently find ourselves, how in the world will we ever hold up should that day come? So James has something to tell us. Our spiritual muscles need to grow hard and strong. And God is giving us opportunity to do that even now in the midst of the very small measure of suffering that you and I endure in this life. So James has for us this morning in these verses three behaviors. Three behaviors that are both essential and possible in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ. James will root it all in that theological reality. Three behaviors, both essential and possible, in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Follow along as I read. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets the early and late rains. You too, Be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Three behaviors that James has for us this morning, and they are essential. Essential and possible in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ. The first is that we must be living patiently. Living patiently. James begins with a very straightforward command, verse 7. Be patient. Be patient, brethren. In light of what you are going through, the therefore, referring back to the first six verses of the chapter, in light of what you're going for, be patient. Be patient. This word patient or patience, the noun, means literally to be long-tempered. To be long-tempered. It's an attitude of restraint in the face of provocation by other people. In the face of other people's provocation, you are to restrain yourself. You are to be long-tempered, be patient. James uses in verse 11, by the way, a related word, endurance. You can see it there. That speaks of restraint with regard to difficult circumstances. 
We are patient with people. We endure circumstances. That's a general rule for the Greek. Patience is a virtue to be found among the people of God. The Proverbs encourage patience. It's an outworking of wisdom. Proverbs 14 and verse 29. He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Proverbs 15 verse 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger pacifies contention. Proverbs 19 and verse 11, and I like the NIV's translation here, a man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. Patience is the outworking of biblical wisdom. Patience is also an attribute of God. It is an attribute of God. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Paul says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, that patience is... is a virtue, is a spiritual fruit that is produced by the Spirit of God within the hearts of His people. The fruit of the Spirit, Paul says, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It is an outworking of the Spirit of God within the hearts of the people of God. Patience commanded of us and then exampled for us in the text. James brings to bear three examples of patience in order to encourage his readers who are suffering to manifest this Christian virtue in spite of their circumstances. We have the example of the farmer in verse 7. Behold, the farmer waits For the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and latter rains. James gives us an example of what it means to to wait and trust God. To wait and to trust in the providential care of God. James gives us the example of a farmer. Now we live in the suburban setting, right? Right? Very few of us are farmers or know really anything about farming. And so, for most of us, produce comes from a grocery store. It's probably grown in the back room, right? Yeah. But for the farmer, they understand the reality of patience. They understand that they can do really nothing to affect the outcome. They must wait and they must pray to God to bring the rain at the proper time. This is especially true in that part of the world. They were dependent, he says, upon the early and the late rains. There were a certain period of time in the crop cycle in which rain had to come. And if the rain failed to come, the crops would wither and die. 
And so they were entirely waiting upon God to act, and they had to act patiently, and there was really nothing they could do about it. They had to wait upon God. James says in light of that illustration, that example, that we must demonstrate a farmer's mentality, a farmer's patience. And that is that we must firmly adhere to the Lord, strengthening our hearts, you see it, Verse 8, strengthening our hearts in the midst of very trying circumstances. We must wait upon God. We must wait upon God. He goes on to give us another example, beginning in verse 10. The example of the prophets. He says, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, We count those blessed who endured. So now James refers them back to the Old Testament prophets. Now to be a prophet of God was to suffer. The two go hand in hand. You want the prophetic mantle? You will suffer. And it's really interesting if you step back from it for a moment and think about it. Because James here says that they spoke in the name of the Lord, the end of verse 10. You might think that someone who was certified to speak in the name of God Almighty might somehow escape suffering, that God might intervene to protect his spokesman. But actually, it's just the opposite. To be the spokesman of God, to be the prophet of God, was to suffer. God did not shield his prophets from suffering. In fact, to be a prophet was to suffer, and it was to suffer at the hands of your own countrymen. The very people to whom you came and poured out your heart would be the very ones who would bring the suffering and affliction on you. They were the cause of your suffering. Hebrews chapter 11, by the way, and you can turn there if you'd like, just a few pages back to the left. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35 and following. The writer of the Hebrews indicates for us the the motivating force behind the patient suffering of the prophets. How was it that they were able in the face of such intense persecution and suffering to hang on? How is it that they were able to to be patient? The answer that the writer of the Hebrews gives us is that it was their firm belief in the resurrection. Verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Verse 40, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I won't take time to read all of the afflictions that fall between those verses. But the point of the matter is that the prophets had their hope firmly fixed upon the resurrection. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 speaks of that resurrection. It is a resurrection either unto life or unto death, a resurrection unto Messiah's kingdom, or a resurrection where one is banished from his kingdom. So what was it that sustained the prophets? What was it that caused the prophets to continue in the face of such opposition? The answer was they had their eyes fixed upon Messiah's kingdom. They expected 
Messiah's kingdom to come. Back to James. Where he gives a third example. Chapter 11. He says, you have heard of the endurance of Job. And have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. That the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. We know the story of Job, don't we? We know how much Job suffered. We also know that in the end, God abundantly blessed Job, didn't he? We're told in Job chapter 42, verses 10 and 12, that the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. God took care of Job. God provided for Job. But Job's ultimate hope was not in this material world. It was not in that God would restore his material fortunes. Job's ultimate hope lay in the same place that all the people of God have ultimately hoped, and that is to be in Messiah's kingdom. Job chapter 19 and verse 26 Job says, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Even this ancient man had a hope in the resurrection of the dead and life in the presence of Messiah's kingdom. What is it that gives us patience? In the midst of suffering, James says, It's to hope in Messiah's kingdom. What would James tell you or me today? What would James say to you in the midst of your difficulties today? What counsel would he bring to you? What would he say to me? Living patiently, my friends, is essential and possible in light of the second coming. Secondly, speaking rightly is a behavior that is both essential and possible in light of that second coming. Speaking rightly. Speaking rightly here in the text actually takes two forms. Verse 9, don't blame other people for your troubles. Verse 9, don't blame other people for your troubles. Verse 12, don't be duplicitous in your speech. Don't blame other people for your troubles and don't be duplicitous in your speech. Let's take a look at that first example. Don't blame others for your troubles. This is what it means to speak rightly. Verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves will not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Difficulties tend to bring disunity among the people of God. Difficulties tend to cause us to turn on each other, to snap and bite and chew one another. We see it illustrated, by the way, very simply in the world of sports, don't we? All you have to do is manufacture a losing streak as a professional team, and it will not take long before one player after another comes before the microphones 
and begins to explain why the team's doing so poorly, and their explanation typically has to do with the underperformance of their teammates. Team unity begins to break down. They begin to snap and bite and complain against one another. We also see it, by the way, in reality TV programming, right? Reality TV, it's, it's designed to place people in stressful environments and then continue to ratchet up the pressure until they turn on one another and devour one another while we morbidly sit there and call it entertainment. We watch people tear one another apart. It's kind of an electronic version of the Colosseum. Pressure, stress, persecution, difficulties. It turns people against one another. The people of God are not immune to this. We are not immune to this. Moses knows knows what it means to see the people of God turn on one another in the midst of difficulty, doesn't he? Forty years of wilderness wanderings and the people continually turned on their leaders and turned on one another. Moses knows what it means. Stress causes people to complain, to judge, to bite, to tear, to claw. And James says, my friends, verse 9, This is an ungodly behavior that God will judge. Stop it or you will be judged. But beyond that, he goes on to speak about the importance of being honest in our communications. He says that we are not to be duplicitous in our speech, verse 12. Duplicitous is to be deceitful in what we say. To mislead people. Verse 12, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Now, the Jews of the first century had developed a very elaborate system of oath taking. It was designed by them to lend credibility to their word. So they had a hierarchy of oaths. Certain oaths could be broken and other oaths were not able to be broken. And you kind of moved from the lesser oaths to the greater oaths as the importance of the situation grew. Very fascinating. One writer says, and I quote, Oaths in which the name of God was used were held to be binding, whereas those in which no direct mention of God was made were not held to be binding. Thus, the force of an oath that to all appearances seemed binding could be evaded by minute inaccuracies in the formula used. They had developed this to a high art form. I will give you an oath, but you better listen very carefully to the words I use in the oath because it's likely there's a trap door or an escape hatch built in. 
Now, James, like Jesus before him, denounces all such deliberate attempts at deceptive and duplicitous speech. Now, lest we think too poorly of these ancient Jews, we need to be willing to admit that we have our own series of oaths, as it were, by which we add to the credibility of our speech. To tell you the truth, you mean, if you don't say that all the other times, I can assume what? Quite honestly, quite honestly, let me tell you this, as opposed to every other thing I say to you, which is less than honest. Or my favorite, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Right? Now that one is secure. You can depend on that one. Shame on us. Shame on us for even thinking we have to say such things. Because our own credibility as a culture, as a society, is questionable. It's questionable. My friends, Jesus requires honest speech in order to enter his kingdom. You understand that? Jesus absolutely requires honest speech in order to enter the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 and following which is given as the manifesto of Messiah's kingdom, speaks to this very issue of oaths. And Jesus says there, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, and anything beyond these is of evil. Is of evil. Simply put, say what you mean and mean what you say. It is sufficient to say yes or no. For a Christian, there's no need to add anything to that. Our word should be our bond. By the way, Revelation chapter 22, verses 14 and 15. Let me just read that to you. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Lying. There is no place in Messiah's kingdom for duplicitous speech. The standard is honesty. It is honest communication. Living patiently. Speaking rightly. Third, thinking theologically. Thinking theologically. This is the third and final essential behavior for Christians. According to this text. We must think theologically. It is It is really the motivating basis behind the previous two behaviors, living patiently and speaking rightly. It's motivated by thinking theologically. 
The way we learn to exercise patience and right speaking is by thinking rightly about the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's the way James builds his argument. He says the return of Christ is imminent. Again, verse 7. Until the coming of the Lord. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9. Don't complain against one another or you'll be judged. Listen up, behold, pay attention. The judge is standing right at the door. And verse 12, let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Under judgment. The return of Christ is very much woven into the fabric of the context of what James has to say here. The imminent return of Jesus Christ. Now, the English word imminent comes from a Latin verb. For some of you, this may be new information. For others, this is perhaps review, but it's a helpful review. It comes from a Latin verb, and it it means to overhang something or to project out over. To overhang or to project out over. We get the English word imminent. It has the idea of hanging over someone's head ready to overtake them, close at hand, those kind of ideas. An imminent event is an event that is close at hand in the sense that it can overtake you at any moment, any time. Other things may occur first, but nothing must occur first. Otherwise, the event is not imminent. Imminent does not mean shortly. Understand that. Imminent does not mean shortly because shortly implies a period of time before the event must occur. So this event, the return of Jesus Christ, the judge standing right at the door, it overhangs us. It projects over us. It's ready to overtake us at any moment, at any moment. My friends, this is the record of the New Testament, by the way. This is the record of the New Testament. The apostles believed in the imminency of the return of Christ, and that is evident all over the New Testament. They were sure that Christ could return at any moment. At any moment. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 52. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Referring to death there of the Christian. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5, Paul says, Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. Why? The Lord is near. The Lord is near. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Paul writes, for they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, we are looking 
for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The Apostle John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 7. John writes, Behold, the words of Christ, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Throughout the New Testament, it is the uniform opinion and teaching of the apostles of Jesus Christ under inspiration of the Spirit of God that Christ's return overhangs them, that it could come at any moment, at any moment. They were looking for it in their lifetime, in their lifetime. Now, from God's perspective, the date of the return of Christ is fixed, not flexible. Acts chapter 1, verse 7 Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed in his own authority. That was in response to a question. Is it now, Lord, that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, It's not for you to know the time the Father has fixed for such an event. But from the human perspective, it could occur at any moment. This is part of the mystery of our triune God. Now, most of us don't expect Christ to return. If we're going to be honest with each other, in our lifetime, most of us do not live in light of that reality. Most of us think we will see Christ when we die, not when he returns. That's why I believe the church has become impoverished because of that kind of thinking. When you're young, the thought of death is a very remote Reality, isn't it? You'll acknowledge, well, of course we die. All men die. But it won't be me, and it won't be for a very long time. You arrive at middle age, and you recognize that, well, the days are growing short. The sun is beginning to go down. But I still have plenty of time. Plenty of time. Even when you get up in years, there's still that thinking that, well, there's always tomorrow. There's always tomorrow. My friends, Christ could return today. Do you understand that? Today, now. And that is what is to drive the way we live. Because His return to establish His kingdom involves both judgment and reward. We're to live in the light of this reality of the return of Christ. To live any other way is to live as a practical atheist. A practical atheist. To have a church that has been neutered by losing out on this great doctrine. My friends, if we are actively looking for the return of Jesus Christ, it puts life's difficulties in perspective. It really does. 
I mean, all those petty things that bother us so much in light of the glorious kingdom of Messiah, they don't amount to anything, do they? I mean, that person that's really irritating you, that's like nothing in light of the glory of Messiah's kingdom. Nothing. It's gone. Just like that. Maybe you will be called upon to suffer. Maybe Christ will call upon some of us to actually suffer for his name. To join in with the long line of the people of God who have suffered for their faith. That may happen. And if it does, the anchor for our soul, the lash point that keeps us from being blown and tossed about is our belief in the imminent return of Christ. That will give us strength to persevere. Patience in the face of harassment. Deliverance from difficulty. Do you believe the doctrine of the imminent return of Jesus Christ? Do you really believe it? Is it changing you? Is it changing the way you live? Or is it merely intellectual assent? Yeah, that's another section of the doctrinal statement. Check, I agree. Or does it transform us? Does it change the way we make decisions? Does it affect our value system? Does it change the way we relate to people? Does it, does it alter our priorities in the world? What difference does it make? What difference would Christ have it make if by faith we were to truly cling to it? I pray that the Spirit of God works in our hearts today. And we set our eyes on the blessed hope and return of Christ. It will purify us. It will embolden us. It will glorify God through us. May God grant us grace. Let's pray. Our Father, even into the very communion celebration, we have the reminder of the return of Christ. Where Jesus promised that he would not again drink of the fruit of the vine until he did so with his disciples in his kingdom. Where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, That by doing these things, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It is the return of Christ that is the next event on the prophetic calendar. It is the completion of all that Messiah came to do. It is the public vindication of his atoning sacrifice. It takes that which is relatively unknown 
and proclaims it worldwide that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. O Lord, with the church of old, we pray, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. May you help us by your grace, even this day, O Lord, to fasten our hope on the return of Messiah, to look for it, to have one eye up, as it were, and one eye straight ahead, to make decisions, to chart the course of our life. Upon that wonderful reality, that as children of God, as one with Christ, we will share in his kingdom. Let these truths burn deeply into our heart today. We pray in Jesus' name.